and welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics, and technology from a global south perspective. My name is Sanjana Hattatwa and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. other end we are also seeing um, a, a really booming um, industry of disinformation um, really incentivized by monetization as well I think platforms internally are there's so many silos and so much frustration and well, what we're seeing working with some platforms is they are good people um, working hard to, to change things and often their work gets undermined by other parts of the companies that have um, different objectives. Hello and welcome to another conversation. I'm speaking today with somebody I've known for many years. Uh, it seems longer than I've actually known her first met her in Myanmar and have continued to be uh, very interested in her output and writing even from afar. Victuario is somebody who has lived experience in Myanmar, uh, lived through and experienced what occurred last year and has continued to engage with the country from the lens of, if I'm not misrepresenting you, social media and its interactions with society and politics. Victor, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And great to be with you. Listen, I'm I'm in recording this on a day that has very sad news that I think we all woke up to around the world, where the junta has executed for including a former member of parliament. And I guess that's a sad but necessary segue into the first question, which is that even for myself, coming from Sri Lanka, because my own country is in uh, quite a bit of a mess at the moment, it's really hard to find the bandwidth to focus on what's happening and going on in Myanmar. We know that a year ago, it was very much top of the news, but so many things have happened um, that it's no longer front and center on even those who have been moved by and interested in what's going on. But that's not the case for you. You continue to be engaged necessarily in what's going on. So I suppose for those of us listening, what do you think has changed over 2022, Victoire, that we need to be mindful of? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's been a big shift in attention and that um, we felt it quite a lot in terms of how much coverage Myanmar has been receiving. Um, but the situation is still um, is still very bad and we still continue to see, um, well, there's continued violence across the country um, and um, and there's at this point no real end in sight. Um, and, and that's, so we've seen and perhaps I mean it's a it's a it's a difficult um well as you mentioned particularly the 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 incident of the last couple of days have been mm. particularly difficult maybe with big change of 2022 if anything is that people are realizing that um the um revolution is not going to succeed in six months time 
and that we are in for a longer um for the longer run and i think it's that like realization that that's sort of um waiting on people at the moment is that it's you know when when you yeah degree of 2021 uh what you had was mass protests across the country and and the sense and this feeling that uh this is it we're going all in um we're going to get rid of the military um and i think that the whole situation is getting more entrenched and um uh, and it's getting more difficult obviously you have civil servants having to cope with having un uh, been unpaid for a very long time so they went mm civil disobedience movement that joined the civil disobedience movement that now may be returning um and so that like and I think there's in in the country a bit of a return to a sense of um it, like everyday life has to go on um the most you know, yeah I think you hit the nail on the head I think um and that's certainly the sense that I get and I wanted to ask a question that I wanted to ask later on but you may recall that I wanted or invited you to speak at a conference that the Center for uh, Peace and Conflict Studies here at Otago University organized in March 2021. And of course, you couldn't because that was when all hell broke loose. Um, and the question I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, in that time, mm -hmm. how have you negotiated being away from the country with what you did? for so many years, around six years and invested in and helped craft and create and worked with people on the ground and, you know, leaving under the traumatic circumstances that you did. I suppose now you have had some time to reflect and also recover from from having to deal with the immediate uh, effects of all of that. Um, how has it been engaging with the country deeply and every day, but from afar? Not easy. Mm. Um, I think it was um, particularly the the first few weeks and 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 months were very difficult. I think um, I left uh, just before the um, like a very well the twenty seventh of March, which was uh, which was really one of the massacres. Um, and in twenty twenty one, yeah, in twenty twenty one, yeah, and and watched um, what was unfolding from a distance, trying to do. Um, safeguarding and backing up of some of those um evidence of crimes being committed uh in the country so it was this bizarre situation i think we had this bizarre mm. um and go going from myanmar into thailand at the time meant you had to have a two-week quarantine um so all of us then moved over uh had a two-week um really um constrained period in a hotel room not um not able to um to meet anyone and really just kind of sitting with our computers um looking at what was unfolding um back in back in Myanmar so that was a a strange transition phase mm. uh, um and and, and certainly a, a difficult one uh, at the time as well we were doing a lot of um I was doing a lot of work a um backing up uh, evidence that we were seeing um and so that was that there was basically my day was watching a lot of those um a lot of those videos and hoping that uh, no one pops up that I actually personally know um but a um the over over time I think it it gets it gets easier and and I think one of the um I I'm now based in Thailand where a lot of uh, a, a lot of the Myanmar um exile community has has come to so it's 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 been helpful um yeah. to have 
um, to have that community around and to be uh, engaged with that community and, and and connected to the crisis. I know that um, when I went back to friends for holiday, for example, that was very difficult because you could really feel how Myanmar had fallen off the news yeah. and how this was no longer really, oh, it just felt to people like something very far away that was none of their um, none of their business. And and I think that's that's what's most difficult. But being um, being in surrounding countries where there's um, a, a significant um, exiled community has been um, certainly helpful. So let's let's talk about kind of the issues that you've been involved in regarding social media, both around the country, but also you know, your writing is looking at systemic issues as well. I mean, I, I want to get to the Toda paper from 2020 um, that you wrote about Myanmar in a series that I also contributed to, but let's get to that later on. But, you know, I suppose one way that many engaged with what was going on and wrong last year, um, till it was overtaken by news headlines this year was Myanmar's engagement with social media and Facebook in particular with Rohingya and, and all of that. So it kind of like predated the, the Junta's uh, 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 shenanigans in the country. Since what happened happened, we've also seen news stories around the use of social media. But I suppose that's exactly what they are, news stories. And I don't think one gets a sense of what actually is happening on the ground with regards to how people are using social media. Uh, you have your finger on the pulse, you know, how how has social media shaped the way people interact, see each other, communicate, resist, um, get entrapped by, you know, also the juntas using it. So help us think through some of the stuff that you've been seeing and dealing with. Sure. I mean, one 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 big thing, I think, um, that is worth sort of starting with is a lot of the um, a lot of well, there's been a huge crackdown on the media. Um, the, the traditional media, right? And so a lot of the print media stopped um, publishing. Some of them had stopped during the COVID period, but certainly we've seen sort of a big reduction mm. in, 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 in an increased reliance by the media on the digital space. Um, and um, the number of people that are getting their information um, from the internet has certainly grown quite significantly. We've seen the emergence as well of a lot of like very localized news pages and uh, news outlets um, that have come up to provide um, a um, information about what's happening in the particular area. So that that growth, that landscape has grown significantly, and I think people have come to increasingly rely um, on on social media for information. Now we've also seen, and it's been tricky because um, the a the a lot of the policies that platforms like Facebook have and have um, started to enforce more uh, significantly uh, touch on graphic violence, incitement to violence, a lot of things that um, make a lot of sense in peacetime, but are uh, quite complicated to, yeah. to navigate in, in, in conflict time. And I think that, that has also sort of led to um, made it more difficult uh, to cover certain information. And so um, we've seen with that sort of a push as well towards alternative platforms. Telegram really emerged uh, in the uh, in the early days of the coup, um, both among the pro-revolutionaries, but it's also been increasingly uh, used by the military and yeah. proxy um, to to uh, to push out propaganda and engage in in, in harassment campaigns. So we've seen 
sort of a, a diversification of the landscape in terms of what tools um, people use. And I think, um, and, and that came from both sort of, a, a, from, well, it really emerged from a need to uh, also be more careful about what you share where. And I think Telegram really emerged um, as, as people were um, more wary about who they shared information with and uh, and they and being anonymous in, in their in their engagement so that really kind of kicked in in, in the early days of the protest um but also a we've seen Facebook take down a lot of a lot of contents um from from both sides of the of the conflict and so really that has pushed a um a move towards more, and different platforms being used as well. We've also seen uh, a really big push towards um, towards YouTube as um, we've seen more and more video content in the early days um, sort of really kick in. And then now that has sort of um, continued and we we, we, we've, we have YouTube sort of coming up um, and as, a, as an increasingly problematic medium as well. So that's that's really comprehensive. And I guess the question that arises as a consequence also linked to what at the time that we are speaking Sri Lanka is going through is that you have this tension, right? I mean, the global West and the Western headlines would see social media as all bad or all good. There's this pendulum swing every year, every few years from uh, unbridled optimism to uh, absolute despondency that it's all evil and, you know, you need to get out of Facebook and whatnot and, you know, I think that you and I would inhabit a slightly different and more problematic reality where activists rely on it as much as the junta in Myanmar and of course the Sri Lankan government would rely on it to target the activists. Um, you know, and, and it's that gray area, it's that simultaneous interplay of uh, helping as well as harming activism um, that I think you have been most engaged with. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? I mean, you, you kind of touched on that, but has there been any greater understanding around the use of social media for activism and resistance uh, as a consequence of what occurred uh, last year? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been some interesting um, new ways to leverage social media. Um, I think one of the things that I found most interesting um, over the last over the last year, um, which is sort of less your intuitive thinking around using social media per se, but we've seen a um, activist and, and pro-revolutionary forces um, leverage social media monetization tools uh, as a fundraising um, method, which has been really interesting to watch. Uh, and essentially um, pushing out content, encouraging people to click on that click content. Right. And to, um, yeah, um, so, this has been and this has been the challenge right um obviously the the goal here is not to push out um really clickbait key content that is problematic and yeah. that violates copyright and that is disinformation um but really like how can you leverage the fact that within the revolution you have hundreds of influencers um you know comedians singers whatnot can you leverage that content um as as a way to uh to generate um Ad revenue and 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 uh, channel that toward fundraising. So I thought that was one of the most interesting um, a sort of development in 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 that space. And and it's been it's been particularly interesting because of course um, at the same time as this is happening, we're also facing 
very, very um, uh, problematic issues with monetization and, and the lack of, of care and due diligence by platforms uh, when it comes to monetization. Um, it's been pretty reckless. And so we are seeing on the one hand sort of a um, a creative use of monetization as a fundraising tactic. Yeah. And then on the other end, we are also seeing um, a, a really booming um, industry of disinformation um, really incentivized by monetization as well. Monetization has been a really interesting um, and a really interesting part yeah. of my work in the last year, particularly yeah. because we're trying to tackle this problem of disinformation. We also have to handle the fact that there's some legit content creator in the country that should be able to make money. And, uh, and if those legit content creator want to donate that money, uh, as a fundraising, then that should be some, somewhat supported. And at the same time, when you tackle monetization, how do you make sure that this doesn't uh, negatively impact the media space as well, which has become right. um, increasingly reliant on revenues that they're getting yeah. from um, from platforms as well. And your conversations with the companies, you know, if you're having the conversations, I don't want to assume that you are, but if these are ongoing conversations or they are conversations that you've had, um, are they open to the complexity and the nuance that you just said is present? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they are because, I mean, they yeah. are in the sense of like, they're forced to be. Um, I think what we've seen is um, perhaps on like on the monetization specifically, um, one of the first, um, and it just sort of come back to your first question, but one of the first um, instance that really triggered us to look into the problem um, was in the very early days after um, after the coup and whilst the protests were unfolding uh, and, and we started having a crackdown on protests, uh, there were a lot of live video content that were doing a really really high um that we're re having really high reach yeah. and at the time as where I, I was um trying to back up content um live videos were seen as perfect evidence because we knew who had filmed it or so we thought um but what we discovered actually was that a lot of the videos were um a actually not live videos but they were repurposed video being live streamed uh and that they were being live streamed out of cambodia by people that actually had no knowledge of the context. And I was watching these videos, backing them up for accountability purposes yeah. to be, uh, you know, the UN mechanisms and whatnot, yeah, yeah, yeah. and eventually land in, in the ICC. But what turned out was those videos were actually, they were real, um, but they had been taken off YouTube and then live streamed through video platforms and put back into the context. Um, so I was, I was, you know, desperately looking at it as a source of information about what was happening, but it was actually not true. Um, and so we raised this issue um, as as we uncovered this in March of 2021. We raised this issue with the platform, saying, "Look, guys, this is actually really problematic because one, it's actually um, it could affect uh, the evidentiary um, base that will go into the case later, but also um, we are watching this video, thinking this is actually happening right now." But it's not, and 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 that really has um, a really negative impact on on uh, on people. I mean, I was mm. watching the videos as a way of keeping track of the situations to protect my friends, uh, and then realizing that this is actually yeah. um, no longer true. So that was a huge issue which we raised, um, and platforms did take um, this somewhat seriously, um, and um, sort of approached this with a pretty. Um, simplistic solution, which was to say, well, we're no longer allowing monetization in Myanmar, which, as you can imagine, 
uh, what happens then is the the problematic actor is very good at um, evading enforcement and going around this. Um, so they are continuing and doing very, very well and still yeah. making a lot of money. Meanwhile, um, that has had very negative implications for the media, uh, the traditional media, which yeah. actually lost a very significant part of their revenues. And they are, you know, in the middle of the crisis, they are doing incredible work. Um, they've, um, but they're continuing to put out content and content that's of particular value um, of the public because which is actually in need of uh, credible information um but they're seeing a lot of their monetization abilities cut off because yeah. of this simplistic response by platform so we're trying to navigate the space and, and and engage platforms around how they can come up with slightly more nuanced um responses to those challenges um and and, and really learn from it um yeah. because this is something that obviously is happening in Myanmar, but there's is now no doubt also um, in you know happening in Ukraine, Afghanistan. Other places, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Actually, yeah, you would think that they would be more open to it. Um, listen, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room, as it were, Meta or Facebook. You know, I still keep calling them Facebook. If I recall, in March there was uh, an Associated Press report that, in collaboration with a, with an entity called Global Watch, um, revealed that you know this this Global Watch tried to run eight ads, hugely problematic to Rohingya um you know with the ra same racist problematic violent framing and the oh, ads were approved yeah. and the ads were approved of course the ads didn't run but the ads were approved um and that was what the story was about and out of you know it didn't run but that it was approved by a platform which surely should in 2022 you would think had its act together about the one context that it has got a large number of headlines around but it doesn't seem to be the case what's your what's your experience looking at facebook's flailings and failings and i suppose some intent you know some intentionality in getting it right as well over the course of say the the past one one and a half years now i mean as with a lot of those conversations it's it's it has to be nuanced right i think um the the baseline we started with in 2017 was so poor that to <laughs> progress over that is is not difficult yeah um and and there has been progress particularly in in, uh, in regards to engagement there's been a lot more engagement uh, and that has been um very um very good we've seen we've seen more work happened uh in in the Myanmar context we've seen some pretty groundbreaking um moves taken such as the Tatmadaw ban policy uh which which bans the Tatmadaw from using Facebook which is yeah. a big shift yeah uh in in the way the platform approaches things so there has been a number of developments that have been positive now um as you say and this is where we kind of keep hitting at those systemic issues a lot of the the more fundamental problems still remain um and and that's as as you say uh global witness run this experiment with ads um and they all went through which is a fundamental issue um similarly um what we're seeing is a lot of the players that are currently active on behalf of the military or as proxies of the military uh in in the, in pushing some of the current problematic narratives the very same actors that we're pushing um pushing anti-rohingya content 10 years ago i mean many of them we you know we we are by now talking to platforms in particular facebook um and, you know we're talking about them on a first name basis because yeah. we all know 
people are. Yeah. Um, but they still manage to get back onto the platform time and time again. And so we have this huge issues around recidivists mm. that the platform hasn't cracked. Mm. Um, and, and so I think there are, there has been positive developments undeniably in terms of the, we've seen some, um, some, some measures being taken to, to address the situation, but some of those more fundamental issues still remain. And, um, and it is highly problematic that, you know, five years on, um, we still have the very same players, um, continuously. We have people that have been designated under the, uh, DOI policy as dangerous hate individuals are still finding their way back onto the platform using their name, their photo, um, and are still actively engaged in, in, a, in a lot of this, um, a lot of the problematic content that we see. Those are some of the more fundamental issues, but we see we're struggling to see platforms basically take action on those. And, and, and that's, that's a problem. And I can empathize, as you know, Sri Lanka and Myanmar have a, a rather tragic parallel um, journey um, around all of this, uh, both from the genesis of the platform abuse through to a lot of what you're talking about, uh, including actually what I see now in Sri Lanka, right? I mean, you have DOI individuals and the equivalent of Mabata, um, you know, getting back on the platform. Uh, and I think it's worse, right? I mean, un un until and unless an individual like yourself sometimes tells the platform, they themselves don't know. As surprising as that may sound to listeners in 2022. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I had a hunch, Victor, but it's really, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sobering to hear from you that that's where we are still at. I did want to ask you, because again, this is one of those stories that kept, you know, came to our radar and then because of everything else that's happening, went off it. Um, in 2020, I think it was in December 2021 that we first got to hear about uh, uh, Facebook being sued for 150 billion US dollars. Um, what's happened to that case? Do you know anything in terms of progress? Uh, I it certainly escaped my radar in terms of updates, but maybe you do know something. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as I know, um, there were there were two cases, two class action suits, and both of them are on, um, unfolding. I'm not sure where they are at exactly, um, but a um, but they're moving forward, and 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 interestingly, so I think it's the first time that we may see. Um, a, 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 a case of reparation um, make it through. So both cases are, as far as I know, are going. Um, um, yeah, I don't okay. know exactly where they are at. Um, in parallel, there was also an OECD complaint um, that's also um, being pushed. Um, was in in both cases, sort of calls for reparation, uh, and I think um, both okay. cases would be very interesting to watch um, from from that perspective. Um, really interesting. As far, yeah. As far as I know, that's the first time. Um, that we may see yeah. a uh, a case for reparation. I, I, you know, in the context of what happened in February with Ukraine and Russia's invasion, I think you were part of some Twitter conversations that I was part of, and you know, with Brian and you know Brian from uh, formerly Facebook counterterrorism expert, and you know there were a, there were you know cut cut long story short there was this, the suggestion that the company's response to um, Ukraine was shaped by its experience of Myanmar uh, and some lessons learned that you, Victoire, had also contributed to. So I think you shouldn't underplay the role that you played in helping this company understand what to do and what not to do. Um, if 
that holds to to be true and please correct us if we are wrong in that assessment what do you think are the lessons that facebook learned as a consequence of having to deal with myanmar when they um had were forced to deal with ukraine uh, in february look i think one of the things we're realizing and we kind of worked through the rohingya crisis an election and then a coup right so three very different types of crisis but crisis nonetheless uh is that they are actually patterns of what happens on platforms um that that come up in in the midst of crisis and that's you know repurposing old content pretending it's happening right now uh a increased use of platforms for civilians purposes um so we've seen sort of different um things come up that that are sort of bound to be problematic and what we've seen is obviously um in certain cases a meta worked to come up with a mitigation measure and those mitigation measures then proved in to be quite handy as part of a toolkit for how do we respond to crisis elsewhere. Um, unfortunately, though, I think there's still a bunch of different issues that have emerged in those crises that aren't really properly, um, there isn't proper tooling around. And it would be really interesting to think about, um, you know, can we can we tally what are some of those patterns of response or use of social media in the midst of crisis um, that perhaps a we should spend more time thinking about addressing um and and what like learning from from that specifically so i think in the context i mean in the context of ukraine we saw the rollout of locked profile for example um which which is something that had come out of needs that we faced um in in the, in the context of myanmar after the coup uh profiles being used as a main source of intelligence about people uh, and then um, as material for doxing individuals and, and calling for their arrest, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something that was a big deal and continues to be a very big deal. And so Meta worked on a, um, a locked profile uh, tool that um, then proved quite handy in the context of Ukraine and in the context of Russia, um, sort of needing um needing that capacity to to lock profiles much quicker um so that was certainly something that i think um they they, they not only learned about the problem from myanmar but they actually uh, by investing in developing tooling in the context of myanmar uh, they were way more prepared when it comes to the ukraine crisis um but there are a lot more there are a lot more issues i think that could be unpacked um when it comes to when it comes to crisis and crisis use of social media and a lot more work that could be put into trying to uh, design solutions for these issues, because ultimately when when you're addressing one of those problems um, in, in a context like Myanmar, what we've seen is that it becomes useful um, thereafter. And, and, and in the context of the log profile, it became widely useful in the context of Afghanistan and then and then the Ukraine crisis as well. I did before I want to go into the next one. I mean, part of my work here in New Zealand is dealing with what I've called Dantean hellscape, that's Telegram. It's okay. really horrific um, in terms of the hate, hurt and harms, um, absolute gore, violence, um, QAnon, uh, every imaginable conspiracy. Um, there's nothing really good that comes out of it. Um, and I know that in Russia post Ukraine or you know after the after the invasion of Ukraine you know the story is more nuanced even within Ukraine the story is more nuanced as well around the use of telegram but I wanted to use I mean I wanted to use what you said earlier as well and ask you to the extent that you know 
given the rise in the app's use um, over the past year, year and a half, um, are you aware of how it's being used? And, you know, we've, we've talked about the doxing, which is obviously very problematic. Um, have activists embraced it more? Has the resistance movement embraced it? Um, what do you see on it that maybe not on Facebook, etc.? Well, look, um, a, in in the early days, um, in the early days of the protest, people turned to Telegram, sort of learning from the Hong Kong protest movements, and um, as a way to sort of have a more anonymous uh, engagement. And it uh, it had it picked up very quickly among uh, activist communities and uh, and then the entire revolutionary movement. But what we've seen is as it picked up and became more prominent i think at this at this point in time we probably have about a million users in myanmar okay. so it's okay. still sort of fairly limited but it's yeah. it, it's picking up right um and i um and so as as it was picking up what we saw was obviously um the the military side setting up their own channels as well um and and the structure and the way that telegram as a product is designed yeah makes it the ultimate tool yeah. uh, for for doxing campaigns uh it's it it allows you to crowdsource information uh, and then really blast it out yeah. um to to a widespread audience and so it's been used extensively uh for doxing campaigns uh in the last in the last few months um and many of those doxing campaigns have resulted in the people being doxed uh, getting arrested um and so we've seen hundreds of people getting arrested as a result of content um, shared on Telegram. Uh, so that's been sort of the main main concern with the platform. And the platform itself is obviously not um, invested in Myanmar, not interested. Yeah, okay. There's no there's no moder there's no content moderation for Burmese. There's no Burmese content reviewers. Uh, there's no Burmese classifier. There's nothing. I mean, on that, I think the whole world is on the same page. I mean, it's in, it's unclear what what capacity Telegram has in any language in any country. Leave aside Myanmar. Oh, it's actually horrific. It is absolutely horrific. But also, I think there's a question as to like the tool itself in the way that it is designed as a product. Um, there's there's thinking that needs to go into this as well. Uh, it's the ultimate tool for doxing. Um, I think that's. Um, like what we've seen essentially is some of those military stakeholders it's it's guest up on steroid right, um, right. and um and 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 it really like so there's a lot of things that needs to go into both how do we get telegram to pay attention and if they're not going to be moderating at the content level um at least being aware of which actors are weaponizing the tool and and moderating at a actor level yeah. um but also what needs to happen to secure the tool? Fair points. I want to kind of bookend uh, or rather end uh, the, the the conversation with something that you wrote for the Toda Peace Institute, and I'm looking at it here on my screen in June 2020, titled The Role of Social Media in Fomenting Violence, Myanmar. And it's an excellent paper. Um, I don't know whether you recall what you wrote in it. it seems a lifetime away, but in your recommendation section, you made a few recommendations to social media companies. You said prioritize human rights due diligence. You said engage directly with local civil society. You said contextual knowledge and policies around protected categories are very important. Um, you wanted them to scale regularly audit and continuously improve country level enforcement, um, scale efforts to detect and curtail abuse. But 
the one thing that I wanted to focus on was that last recommendation that you made, which is to preserve evidence of abuse, which at the time and continues to date to be something really interesting. And I think, I think as a consequence of Ukraine would be even more of a challenge, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, possible war crimes, right? And crimes against humanity and human rights violations and acts of terrorism uh, that would contravene all the policies that you can imagine governing the platforms. On the other hand, I think the case you make is that it's really important to preserve these as records, right? With, with the metadata and whatever that was uh, associated with the content intact, even if it is taken out of circulation. So, I mean, if you were to revisit that, Victor, that recommendation, could you reflect on what it's been like uh, a year and a year or a year and a half since um, in that regard? You know, this is not something that many people think about. I think it's a tricky one because you have evidence like content that is in itself evidence, um, so a video of a war crime, for example, and that might be <clears throat> somewhat possible for platforms to assess what constitutes potential evidence of war crime that they should be preserving. But what we're really talking about is um, the evidence of some of those campaigns that are being spread, and and the content is is, is slightly different, uh, and it's not as obviously evidence of a crime right yeah. and yeah. and i think in the context of the rohingya crisis what was um what has been frustrating is the content that has been preserved and is discussed about being preserved is content that um is associated with a coordinated innocentic behavior operation that has been attributed to the military um and so within the context of those takedowns the content is retained yeah. and and becomes available but there's a lot more than than what is being obviously caught and taken down under 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 this and a lot of content um is taken down under standard policies whether hate speech or disinformation and harm um and so the content that gets taken down under standard policies may not be retained at all uh, and i think one of the things we've seen with platforms is it's often obviously much faster and much easier uh, if content violates one of the standard policies to take it down under that policy um than to actually investigate a particular set of, of actors and 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 look at a takedown um as an operation an information operation um but the content that gets taken down under standard policies does not get retained right uh, and right. and so i think part of the thinking here is how do we um how do we look at what needs to be preserved more broadly than than just um a specific uh those, those specific sets if we are going to be understanding what actually took place um what happened i mean this happened to us in the election times for example there was a clear campaign that was unfolding um but it, it was much faster for matter to take down the content on a um, on a one-off basis under right. the policy yeah and so there is not there has not been retention by meta of that content and whilst we know that there was a coordinated um campaign taking place that would benefit from being uh further investigated and eventually attributed uh for accountability purposes this might never be possible because the content is now gone so i think that that there's there's a question of like now that we're going beyond just evidence of war crimes being committed offline 
shared online, but into the space of a information operation and, and campaign that's span across multiple, uh, potentially, you know, days, weeks, months of content. Um, how do we identify what constitutes an information operation and make sure that we retain that content? Um, it, it is very, um, it's, it's, it's complex for sure. And it's, it's an area in which there needs to be a lot more thinking put in because there's obviously privacy implications as well of retaining um uh, everything this cost implication of retaining everything but we need to um to think about um what we need collectively need to think about what um what should trigger preservation um a request and 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 how to put boundaries to what needs to be retained but it is important and it has been um it's it's been very like we've done some archiving ourselves and i know you do a lot of archiving and and being able to look back at that content um with the benefit of hindsight and 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 newly acquired knowledge um is 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 really critical um so hopefully we'll see some more developments in in the in the months to come fingers crossed as a last question it does occur to me that you would be the ideal person to join meta or twitter or youtube or google or any one of these platforms and i know that listeners can't see this but you just made a uh, a, a face that uh, was contorted, <laughs> expressing your sheer disdain and disgust, even at the mere suggestion of it. But you know, it, 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 it. I suppose some listeners would think, you know, you have these multi-billion-trillion-dollar companies that can't seem to get right what you have so clearly articulated in this podcast. So you do wonder why they can't, and whether individuals like yourself can't help get their act together but it kind of is uh is mixed with my last question in that insofar as um what what next victor i mean for you for the engagement for the work that you're doing uh, for the country i know that before we started i know i lamented also given what sri lanka is going through um that um, it'll be a while before we can go back uh, return to our home countries or certainly for me to return to myanmar um as I'm as much as I would like to do so. So, you know, given that there's, as you first said, no easy end or early end to any of this, what next? What do you hope to do? And why did you make a face when I made that suggestion? Um, <laughs> no, I made a face because I think there's, um, I think platforms internally are, there's so many silos and too much frustration in well, well, what we're seeing working with some platforms is they are good people um, working hard to to change things, and often their work gets undermined by other parts of the companies that have um, different objectives. And I think that those those friction will really um, get to me <laughs> and the frustration of it all. So I think that that's perhaps um, a why I wouldn't want to work within the companies um, because I think you've faced with with those frictions a lot. But a um, what's next? What's next for us? I think we we've made good progress over the last several years in terms of a um, getting improvements when it comes to issues that are Myanmar specific um, and and getting improvement from Facebook in terms of expanding you know contextual policies um, a improving engagement there's there's been some 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 good progress on issues that are very specific to Myanmar um what we struggle to get progress on is issues that are more systemic mm, mm. Uh, and so what's next really is to further unpack those issues um and and work in collaboration with others um that from from a variety of countries 
um, to document and create an evidence base of how those issues are actually presenting themselves, the impact that they're having, what the root causes are, and looking at how we can um, collectively push for change. Um, I think there, there are issues that we can push for change at a Myanmar level, and, and some of the systemic issues we really need to, uh, to collaborate with others across the global majorities, in some cases the global north as well, um, to, really, um, to really make a case for why some of those um, issues need to be addressed and, and what their impact is. Uh, and so I think part of the, the um, what, what we are looking at sort of into 2022, 2023 is, is, is how do we build on, on, on our understanding of those issues and, and work collaboratively with others uh, across, across many other high risk countries, but also the global majority more broadly mm. um, to build stronger cases and stronger coalitions so we can actually get movement and traction on some of those issues. Fantastic, Victor. Thanks again for joining me. Um, I know it's a busy time. It's always a busy time for you. Uh, and again, I mean, I want to be conscious about the fact that we are recording this on a day that we've both heard some very sad news and one can only hope that things get better and quickly. And thank you for what you've done as well. Thanks so much for having me.